0: I am Ashwin, and I am Raj, and this is the Blood Cancer Talks podcast. Today we are excited to talk about CHIP or Clonal Hematopoiesis of Indeterminate Potential. We have two CHIP experts, Dr. Siddhata Jaiswal, Assistant Professor at Stanford University, and uh, Dr. Alexander Beck, Assistant Professor at Vanderbilt University. Welcome you both. So let's do a quick introduction, Sid. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're working on right now?
1: Of course. Thanks, Ashwin, for the invitation. Uh, My name is Sid Jaswal. I'm an assistant professor at Stanford University in the Department of Pathology and Institute for Stem Cell Biology. My lab studies clonal hematopoiesis. Uh, We are very interested in uh, what it is, what are the consequences, what are the causes, um, and so we're all chip all the time.
2: Hi Alex, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're working on right now?
3: Yeah, thank you uh, Raj and Ashwin for the, the invitation to be here today. Um, I'm an assistant professor at Vanderbilt and uh, I, uh, I aspire to be like Sid when I grow up. We Our lab uh, studies somatic mosaicism um, starting with um, in blood because we have lots of DNA that's been derived from blood, but um, increasingly looking at, at other tissues as well, in, in the lung and the heart tissue um, and elsewhere. And our uh, approach is to try and leverage um, really really big data sets and take a look at the germline genetic uh, causes of um, the somatic phenomena that we're all really interested in.
0: With that, let's just jump right in. And, uh, Sid, I think the, we'll start with you with the first question. You know, what is clonal hematopoiesis? Can you give us like a 10,000 foot overview for our audience?
1: Yeah, of course. So typically hematopoiesis, uh, the process of making all of the cells that circulate in the blood, uh, such as granulocytes, monocytes, lymphocytes, uh, it starts with the hematopoietic stem cell, and it is thought that humans have between 50,000 to 200,000 hematopoietic stem cells in each of us. So that means roughly one in 100,000 peripheral blood cells is derived from a single uh, one of those stem cells. Clonal hematopoiesis means that one of those stem cells is now contributing to an outsized proportion of that blood cell pool. So maybe instead of one in 100,000 cells, it's maybe one in 10,000 or one in 1,000 or one in 100. There's no real strict cutoff, but generally defined clonal hematopoiesis means an outgrowth of the hematopoietic stem cell beyond that original proportion.
0: There, there are a lot of you know, different terminologies in CHIP as well. You know, Some people use it you know, CHIP, some people use it CH, and some people use it you know, ARCH, which is age-related clonal hematopoiesis. And there are also other terminologies such as now, clonal cytopenias of undetermined significance, seekers, and there is other terminology called ICAS as well. Can you give us what these each different terminologies mean and how they differ?
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, great question, glad you asked. So let's start with CHIP. So why did we even need to name something CHIP if there's already this terminology called clonal hematopoiesis? Well, two reasons, first, hematopoiesis can be clonal for many reasons, and actually the most well-studied reason is malignancy. So if you think about blood cancers like myelodysplastic syndrome, they are clonal, and we've known this for many years. And so one of the reasons we coined this term CHIP was to distinguish clonal hematopoiesis in the absence of a hematologic malignancy from another clonal disorder. Uh, like myelotosplastic syndrome. And so that is the why the, the term CHIP was coined. And that's actually why the indeterminate potential part of it came in, uh, because we wanted to emphasize that such a state of having a clonal expansion did not necessarily mean somebody would develop a blood cancer or other adverse outcome. Uh, it's a little bit uncertain. Uh, and so that was reflected in this terminology the second aspect of CHIP that I think confuses a lot of people is there is a cutoff for the size of the clone. And the measure that we use for the size of the clone is called the variant allele fraction. It's defined as the proportion of sequencing reads at a particular base in the DNA that support a mutant allele over the total proportion of reads. And so it it is proportional, we think, to the size of the clone. Why is there a cutoff? Well, you know, I went back to this. Let's go back to this idea of 100,000 stem cells contributing to clonal uh, populations in the blood. So it turns out that if you look at very sensitively in people uh, for some of these mutations, you can actually find a lot of people have mutations that are in maybe one in 10,000 or one in 20,000 or one in 5,000 of their circulating blood cells. So This is so common, in fact, that one study from Todd Drewley's group at WashU found that 95% of middle-aged people had one of these mutations. So if clonal hematopoiesis is so common at this very low level, it doesn't really even make sense to signify that somebody has clonal hematopoiesis. It's a meaningless distinction at that point. And so we knew this even back in 2015. And that's why we instituted this cutoff for CHIP, a variant allele fraction that was arbitrarily defined at two percent. So those are the the two aspects of CHIP. It's a clonal population uh, due to a cancer-associated driver mutation in the absence of a blood cancer, and then it has this minimal cutoff for the variant allele fraction. So some of the other terms that you mentioned, one is called ARCH, age-related clonal hematopoiesis. The concept is basically the same as CHIP, except I would say maybe it's not as well-defined in the literature. There's no kind of consensus definition of what ARCH is. Uh, It's basically just clonal hematopoiesis, likely due to the same mutations that we define CHIP for, um, but without a valve cutoff. The other two entities that you mentioned, um, CCUS and ICUS, c and ICUS, are both cytopenic states. So c is clonal cytopenia of undetermined significance. That means somebody has a mutation that meets the definition of CHIP, but they also have a cytopenia. So one or more of their blood lineages is low. The reason this is considered distinct is that the natural history of CCUS seems to be different from CHIP in that there is a much higher risk of developing a frank malignancy. And in some cases, people with CCUS may actually have MDS that is undiagnosed. Uh, and then the final entity that you asked about, um, ICUS, is uh, idiopathic cytopenia. So that means it's a presence of cytopenia, but no clonal mutation is present. So a sequencing uh, test was performed or a cytogenetic test was performed. No mutation was defined. Almost certainly these people will not develop MDS. Uh, It seems to these kinds of sequencing tests actually have really good negative predictive value for this. Uh, So in this case, we don't really know what's causing the cytopenia, but it seems to not be related to an underlying neoplastic process.
0: Thank you, Seth, for the great explanation. In coming to the definition of the CHIP, you said that the clonal population is based on the mutations, which are mostly associated with myeloid neoplasms and the WAF of 2%. There is also right now a lot of literature in terms of mosaic chromosomal alterations. Do you see that this being incorporated into the definition of CHIP in the future?
1: Yeah, great question. So actually the definition of CHIP does not exclude mosaic chromosomal alterations. So we actually, when we originally formulated the CHIP nomenclature, did not define what mutations are and are not CHIP uh, other than to say that the mutations must be those found in hematological neoplasms as drivers. And certainly some of these MCAs are drivers Uh, The best studied examples are loss of 5Q and loss of 7Q, which are actually defining lesions for myelodysplastic syndrome. So um, those could be considered as CHIP. I think the main limitation right now is that they are not easily assayed. So most sequencing tests that are performed for CHIP would not be able to determine if an MCA is present or not. That may change in the future, and we may start to be able to recognize when somebody has, for example, loss of Y chromosome, which is a very common MCA, or 20Q minus, which is another common MCA. And in which case, I think we would fold those into the definition um, because it would be easily assayed.
2: All right. So, Alex, the next question is for you. I was going to actually ask you about the VAF cutoff, but Sid has explained it really well. So let me ask you this. How do you see the definition of chip and the VAF cutoff evolving in future? I think
3: that we're going to have um, increasing ability to be specific about what VAF threshold our different assays are able to detect And I think that'll be um, really useful for research studies um, because there may be different conditions where different BAF thresholds are differentially useful. Um, One example of this is there's been a a trio of papers on preprint servers looking at change over time recently and it seems that for very very small chip clones um, some of them may never grow to be large chip clones but large ship clones, say ones that are, you know, VAF greater than five percent, seem to be you know, reliably expand over time. And so I think that we'll have more of a sense in the future of um, how, you know, this VAF cutoff of two percent, which has served us extraordinarily well, um, with some of the studies that I'm sure we'll get to uh, later in the podcast, um, you know, may not be the one size fits all cutoff for.
2: Uh, disease. And so, so you're basically saying that maybe a dynamic WAF, like change in WAF over time would also be important rather than just at one snapshot.
3: Yeah, that, that absolutely could, uh, could evolve. And I think that one of the challenges has been finding studies where there are multiple time points, um, but we're just starting to see some, some of that data now.
0: And the follow-up question to you, Alex, is, you know, which, you know, Sid deeply touched upon as the the methodology of detecting CHIP. And uh, most of the studies, you know, large studies, which, you know, SIT was integral part of, and you were as well, was using whole genome or whole exome sequencing. And there are right now multiple newer methodologies like error-corrected sequencing, uh, which, you know, Dr. Truly published earlier. Should we include these more sensitive technologies to diagnose CHIP?
3: I I think that there's always going to be... um a purpose for each of these tools. And depending on the question you're trying to answer clinically um, or in the research domain, you might reach for a different tool. And so looking for really, really, really small VAF mutations may be very helpful um, when trying to quantify minimum residual disease um, in the case of patients with blood cancer. Um, but I completely agree with Sid that it's, it becomes somewhat meaningless if everybody in your study if 100 percent of the people in your study have uh, chips, then it's hard to, to do a regression analysis with that, because um, everyone would be a case. And so I, I think that there are, uh, you know, different tools, some of which are more cost effective, some of which are more sensitive. I think that increasingly, the important thing is to understand the, the advantages, limitations of each. I don't think there's going to be a you know, single one that is the wave of the future that replaces um, you know the others. They, they each have their own place.
2: All right. So now we will shift gears and go to the fun part, that is the clinical implications of CHIP. And since there's a blood cancer podcast, we'll first talk about hemalignancies. So Sid, the first question for you, for the audience, can you tell us what is the relative risk? versus absolute risk for development of heme malignancies in an individual with a chip mutation versus someone without a chip mutation?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, So part of the answer to this question depends on the technology. So we've already discussed that you can find these mutations at a higher prevalence if you use a more sensitive technology or a lower prevalence if you use less sensitive technology. Um, And this also influences the size of the clone. And the size of the clone actually really determines what the risk is. So I think we cannot give one number uh, for this answer. What I will say is that in general, it seems that clones that are small, let's say less than 1% to 2% variant allele fraction, have minimal risk. So uh, if you were to do a comparison of the people who have a clone of this size versus people with no clone detectable, um, you would find minimal increase in their risk of developing a blood cancer. Let's say an odds ratio of, or hazard ratio of less than two. If instead you looked at people who had large clones, let's say a very fraction of greater than 10%, then depending on the study, the risk of developing a blood cancer is much higher. Um, we can say the relative risk is probably at least tenfold higher, but maybe even greater than that. And the absolute risk is similarly also high. Um, in one study that we've looked at, um, at about 20 years, we found a 20% incidence, cumulative incidence of heme malignancies So roughly, let's say, uh, absolute risk of 1% per year. I think there are newer studies um, that have looked in UK Biobank and other sources. I think they're coming up with pretty similar numbers, although Alex may may know the exact uh, numbers in those cases. But let's say for a large clone, the absolute risk is about 1% per year. Uh, And if somebody didn't have a mutation detected, their risk would be substantially lower, let's say tenfold lower than that. So maybe 0.1% per year. So I think those are the kinds of numbers that we're talking about, but there's a great deal of nuance still, even within these categories, based on not just the size of the clone, which we've already talked about, but the specific driver mutation, whether more than one driver mutation is present. And there's potential even more complicated models where you can integrate additional clinical information like CBC parameters to further refine risk. So I think we're very far from the point that where we can tell somebody, this is your risk of developing a blood cancer, but we do know that the risk is elevated when these mutations present.
2: Thanks for the excellent explanation. This is so fascinating because in uh, myeloma, you know, which I do, uh, as you know, in MGUS, it's fairly similar. It's one person per year risk of development of myeloma. As a follow up question, could you briefly comment on myeloid versus lymphoid chip?
1: Yeah. So, in general, it seems that chip, at least as we have defined it with the set of driver genes that we have used, has a much greater risk of myeloid malignancy than lymphoid malignancy, which is not a surprise because the genes that we typically find in chip, the common driver genes, TNMT3A, TET2, ASXL1, JAK2, Splicing factor mutations are all much more common in myeloid malignancies than they are in lymphoid malignancies. So, in that sense, this is not a surprise. Uh, there is this emerging idea that there are specific lesions that are precursor lesions for lymphoid malignancies. So, there was a, a recent paper from Ben Ebert's group, uh, first author Abhishek uh, Narula, where he found that if you looked, for mosaic chromosomal alterations that are typically found in lymphoid malignancies like CLL, then having one of these driver mutations seem to have a much greater risk of developing lymphoid cancer. So I think there is a bit of a divide in terms of the specific driver mutations that give rise to myeloid malignancies are one thing, and the specific driver mutations that give rise to lymphoid malignancies are a completely separate set
0: think so. Even the, the definition of you know, myeloid versus lymphoid, chip. I think it's not clear yet. I think there is no you know, clear distinction yet. Hopefully, you know, in a, in the future publications, which studies you will know, we'll shed more light on. That. Absolutely. Another uh, common population of patients, you know, we see in the clinic are you know cancer survivors who had history of exposure to cytotoxic chemotherapy or radiation therapy. Can you tell the audience what is the prevalence of CHIP in these patients as well as what is the therapeutic implication?
1: Yeah. So in general, the prevalence in this population appears to be higher. Uh, There's all the caveats as before, which are that this prevalence is dependent on the sensitivity of the method, but in general, it seems to be higher. And the reason it seems to be higher is that there is a much higher proportion of people who have driver mutations in the so-called DNA damage response genes, uh, specifically TP53 and PPM1D, both DNA damage response genes. So now that you have this population that seems to be enriched in these particular genes, what what does it mean uh, in this context? So there's been a lot of work that's been done on this. Um, in people with various types of cancers, including other uh, heme malignancies like lymphomas or multiple myeloma or solid cancers that are non-hematologic. All of these studies have found is that CHIP is a bad prognostic sign. People who have CHIP seem to develop uh, or have complications or early death or relapse due to their primary malignancy if one of these mutations is present. It's not clear why this is the case. I think there's two schools of thought here. One is that the mutations are a marker of something else. So it could be a marker of cumulative chemotherapy exposure. And therefore, somebody who has a large TP53 or PPM1D clone is just somebody that's failed a lot of therapies or doesn't respond well to therapies. And that's why maybe they do more poorly. And then I think there's another idea out there that is relatively untested is that some of these mutations may actually have a causal role in outcomes related to non myeloid malignancies. So, So that's some of the studies that have been done. And then, of course, there's a whole set of other studies that have looked at, well, if you now have a solid tumor, but have developed a p53 clone, what is your outcome with regards to myeloid malignancy? And there, I think the answer is much clearer. tp 53 is bad. You have a much higher risk of developing a myeloid malignancy, almost certainly due to a causal effect of having a tp 53 clone. I think the answer is a little less certain for what a PPM1D clone means in that situation. It's not yet clear if that is a clear driver of secondary or therapy-related myeloid malignancy or whether it's uh, somewhat of a bystander. I think
0: on the similar lines, I think it begs the question that maybe we need to screen patients for these mutations, especially TP 53 and PPM one-day
1: mutations
0: before they get any kind of chemotherapy or radiation therapy for their solid tumors.
1: It's a very interesting idea, and certainly one that has been floated out there. I mean, you know, kind of the classic example is a. a patient with breast cancer who may or may not need adjuvant chemotherapy, and you know there, may, there could be pros and cons. If you were to identify, let's say, a P53 mutation in such a patient, would you now change your decision from giving adjuvant chemotherapy away to not giving it? I think that idea has a lot of merit. I think in order to change practice. You guys are actually oncologists, so you tell me. But my sense from where I'm sitting is somebody would need to do a randomized control study to know if this is actually the right thing to do. But I think it has merit.
0: I think we need randomized data to prove conclusively whether we need to screen these patients for chip mutations. Another interesting set of population is the donor-derived chip and, you know, their implications, you know, especially for undergoing allergenic stem cell transplantations. There are like, you know, two papers published on that, and both have a little bit conflicting reports, and I'm curious to know your thoughts on that.
1: Yes, uh, this seems to be an area that is ripe for debate. Again, I I don't really have a, a horse in this race, so, you know, I think there's a lot of research that could be done in this area. I I think we do not have a definitive answer at this point, other than to know that in some cases, yes, people will get donors that have these mutations. And yes, in some cases, it is possible that they will develop a malignancy derived from that donor clone. I don't think we have enough evidence now to know if this is a reason that we should screen donors. I think You know, there was this very nice study from Coleman Lindsley's group that was recently published that suggested that actually maybe donor chip be tending a little bit towards actually being beneficial. Reasons that they speculated that this might be the case was having certain chip clones may actually promote an anti-tumor, anti-leukemia response. It's not implausible. That Some of these mutations we know have Im, uh, roles in immune response. The mutations that are found in CHIP are typically epigenetic regulators, so they're broadly involved in gene expression and gene regulation. So it's not unheard of to expect that there may be alterations in how immune cells function when one of these mutations is present. And so I think what they have speculated is that perhaps the DNMT3A uh, mutations changes the way T cells function in some way that promotes an immune response. So I think we're we're very far yet from the point of knowing what we should do about these mutant clones, Uh, but I certainly don't think anyone currently is advocating that all donors should be screened and uh, CHIP clones should be excluded from donation at this time.
0: So let's shift gears and let's talk about the next big implications of CHIP, which is cardiovascular outcomes. So Alex, the question too is, what is the relative and absolute risk of developing adverse cardiovascular outcomes such as
3: coronary artery
0: disease or ischemic stroke with patients with SHIB?
3: That's a a great question. And and one that I'll um, also sort of, uh, I guess, take the same tack that Sid did in addressing the uh, cancer disease risk. So, uh, you know, in terms of heart disease, heart disease becomes more and more common as people get older. And so the absolute risk of um, having uh, heart disease if you have CHIP if you're 70 years old would look very different than if someone has CHIP when they're 30 years old. But I can say from the work that uh, Sid led in the 2017 New England Journal paper, and uh, we and others have subsequently uh, replicated in other populations, it appears that there's about a twofold and relative increased risk of heart disease uh, from chip. Now you know, it depends on the mutation. We're increasingly learning that, um, let's say DNMT3A and tet 2 are the most common chip genes, that tet 2 seems to be um, worse in terms of cardiovascular outcomes than DNMT3A. And other CHIP mutations like in Jack two are, you know, substantially uh, worse than either DNMT3A or Tet two. So it's it's. I think uh, we're still a little ways off from having a uh, you know Framingham risk score that incorporates CHIP, um, but I think increasingly uh, we will get there with with larger and larger studies that have more and more heart disease.
0: The follow up question to that is: Do we have a mechanistic evidence or mechanism why? By- this happens, especially I think with TET2 or KMT3 mutations?
3: Yeah. And then, so there have been uh, a number of, of int- different lines of evidence um, pointing to uh, how CHIP may cause coronary heart disease. Um, the first line of evidence came from SIDS 2017 paper, as well as a, a paper from Jose Fuster, um, looking at Um, murine models of atherosclerosis and transplanting um, TET2 mutated bone marrow into um, mice that um, were prone to athero. And uh, both studies um, found, you know, highly concordant results that were done in, you know, independent labs with independent model systems that um, bone marrow transplant of uh, TET2 mutated cells led to worse atherosclerosis. Um, And this sort of line of experimental work has been extended by a number of groups now um, across multiple different animal models. Second line of evidence um, suggesting that CHIP is causal for coronary artery um, disease comes from human genetic studies that I led. Um, In particular, we found that uh, there were particular germline genetic mutations in the IL-6 receptor that modified the association between uh, chip and cardiovascular disease, Um, but only in people with chip and and not in people without chip. And uh, this observation um, has um, been in the news again recently with uh, work from the Regeneron um, Genetic uh, Center. And interestingly, they replicated the same results in the uh, same data set, which is always good. And the first 50,000 people sequenced um, as part of the UK Biobank. Um, and when they extended to the, um, the entire cohort, they had some difficulty replicating the signal um, with heart disease and with the sil 6 SNP. And so I think um, we are going to see sort of other groups try and uh, do their own version of this analysis and we'll see uh, what emerges. The third line of evidence um, actually comes from a randomized clinical trial that was done um, called the CANTOS study. Uh, this was a study of IL-1 beta inhibition in um, to prevent secondary events in, in cardiovascular disease. The This uh, study published in 2017 uh, by Paul Ritger and colleagues showed that there was about a 15% decreased risk of heart disease um, in patients treated with canakinumab. The uh, Novartis team subsequently went back and reanalyzed this data for uh, focusing on uh, chip, particularly DNMT3A and TET2 chip. Um, And they found that there is a markedly increased benefit and had a 65% reduction in cardiovascular events in patients who had TET2 chip when treated with IL-1 beta um, inhibitor. And so um, to me, uh, and again, this is a a post hoc analysis. uh, you know, we'll, we'll need prospective trials uh, to further evaluate this observation, um, but to me, all three of these lines of evidence are highly convergent on a mechanism through which clonal hematopoiesis uh, promotes inflammation um, through the inflammasome IL-1 beta IL-6 um,
0: and that leads to cardiovascular disease. Um, now let's move on to the next topic, which no, actually is a hot topic, which everyone was talking about this past ASH, which was presented as a plenary session at ASH. Chip and risk of Alzheimer's dementia. So sir, can you give us a brief overview of this study and the key findings?
1: Of course. So um, Alzheimer's is, of course, a disease of aging. And we are interested in knowing if CHIP has associations to many diseases of aging. And so it seemed like a natural question to ask. Uh, And I have to admit, my hypothesis going into this study was that, if anything, we would find that CHIP would increase the risk of dementia. After all, as Alex has mentioned, CHIP seems to be associated with increased inflammation in innate immune cells. And... At least based on some mouse studies in Alzheimer's, that innate immune inflammation seems to be bad and increases Alzheimer's in mice. So, you know, I was expecting that that is what we would find. And so that's what the analysis that we did. Um, so we, we looked in a uh, longitudinal cohort that was unselected for Alzheimer's. And then we also had a case control study for Alzheimer's disease. So we had two separate um, studies that we looked at. And surprisingly in both, what we found was that chip was associated with a decreased risk of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, And it was not a small decrease. It was about a 30 to 40% decrease in the risk of Alzheimer's. And just to put that in perspective, uh, that's greater than the protection seen with having an APOE epsilon 2 allele. That's the most common protective inherited genetic variant for Alzheimer's disease risk. Um, so CHIP seemed to be even stronger of a protection than that one, which is very well known and very well studied in the Alzheimer's field. And we showed that uh, not only did the carriers of CHIP have a decreased risk of clinical dementia due to Alzheimer's, when we looked in the brains at autopsy of people without Alzheimer's disease and asked, Are the neuropathological features that are associated with Alzheimer's, the amyloid plaques and the tau tangles, are they increased, same, or decreased? We found that people with CHIP actually had decreased levels of these pathological features, even in the absence of clinical dementia. So this suggested to us that there was some underlying change in the pathophysiology that was different in people with CHIP. So another way that we also looked at this question was to perform an analysis known as Mendelian randomization, which Alex has done and, and others as well. Where we asked if one has the genetic variants that predispose or have some influence on CHIP, does that now influence the risk of Alzheimer's? And the reason people like to do this kind of Mendelian randomization analysis is that it's a form of causal inference. So unlike observational studies where CHIP can be influenced by something that happened during life, like let's say smoking or exposure to chemotherapy, that's not true for the genetic variants that you're born with. That's not subject to that kind of confounding. And so it's a form of causal inference because you can now ask among people who have an increased genetic risk of CHIP, how does that influence their risk? of this other disease of interest. And so we did that kind of analysis and we got the same answer. Having an increased genetic risk of CHIP decreased the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. So all in all, there are multiple lines of evidence that supported this phenomenon. Now, one thing that we were very interested to know was whether these CHIP variants could be found in the brain. And if so, what type of cells would they be found in? And we were particularly interested in a type of cell known as microglia, which are the macrophages of the brain. And the reason microglia are of such intense research interest is that genome-wide association studies, GWAS, for Alzheimer's disease have strongly implicated microglia in the pathophysiology. So if you look at the variants that have come up in these GWAS for Alzheimer's, those variants tend to be near genes that are either enriched or only expressed in microglia. So that's why people are really excited about microglia in Alzheimer's disease. And furthermore, most of the genes uh, or many of the genes that have come up in to are genes that are involved in phagocytosis, So probably important for clearing some of these toxic protein aggregates like amyloid or that are involved in lipid handling, another important function of myeloid cells. So for this reason, we wanted to know, are the CHIP variants present in the microglia? And so we obtained autopsy samples from people who had CHIP. We devised some flow cytometry methods to sort out the microglia. uh, And then we asked, are the mutations present in the microglia fraction of the brain? And we did, we found it in almost all of the chip carriers. We had eight chip carriers, brains. In seven of them, we found evidence for the mutations in the microglia fraction. We then went on to do some further experimentation um, using a method called single cell attack sequencing, which helps us identify the cell type that's present in the brain using the pattern of chromatin accessibility. And what we found using this method was that the only cell type that was present in the brains that was hematopoietic was microglia. We didn't find T cells, we didn't find B cells, we didn't find monocytes, we just found microglia. So what this proves is that somehow these chip mutant cells are able to cross the blood brain barrier, they're able to engraft into brain and then develop into microglia. We don't know how, we don't know why, but this seems to be the case.
0: What is the next line of research?
1: yeah. So I think the, the kind of the obvious next step is to figure out, well, what the heck are these cells doing in the brain that could maybe protect against Alzheimer's disease? And so there's a variety of hypotheses. So you could imagine that one explanation is, well, maybe these cells are just better than endogenous microglia at clearing these pro- pro- toxic protein aggregates. You know, maybe they're better at phagocytosis Uh, Or maybe, you know, normal microglia, if they phagocytose too much, they just die, whereas these cells don't, you know, something like that. So I think that's the kind of experiment that we can do using animal models or cell line models. And so that's one approach um, that we're taking. Another idea is that maybe as we age, our endogenous microglia just undergo, you know, maybe a form of senescence where they just stop to function. And maybe these fresh cells come in and they kind of just replace that function, even though maybe they're not better at phagocytosis, but maybe they're just less prone to the senescent process. And so that's another kind of hypothesis that uh, we can explore using um, animal models or potentially even human, primary human tissues. Um, So I think there's a lot to do in this area. Uh, You know, one of the good things is that there are a lot of Um, animal models of, I wouldn't say Alzheimer's dementia, because mice cannot get dementia. That's a very human phenotype. But at least some of the underlying pathophysiology of Alzheimer's disease, like the amyloidosis, uh, and in some cases, even the, the tauopathy can be modeled in the mice. So those are all things that we're exploring.
2: So um, Alex, uh, shifting gears a bit, so next question is for you. So let us talk a little bit about race and clonal hematopoiesis. So as you know, most of the current population studies on clonal hematopoiesis is in whites. Do we have any data on the incidence of CHIP in other racial ethnic groups, such as Asians, Blacks, or Hispanics? So,
3: In our um, uh, 2020 Nature paper from the top head cohort, we profiled about 100,000 people um, and, and looked for clonal hematopoiesis. Um, there, that cohort is about 50% white, but it does have a pretty substantial, perhaps uh, 30% um, of the uh, individuals profiled were African American, and probably about 10% Hispanic and 10% um, were East Asian. And so, what um, we saw in that study, um, which is you know was similar to uh, some of the early observations from Sid's 2014 New England Journal paper. Uh, Where that it seems that um, blacks and Hispanics have less clonal hematopoiesis than individuals of uh, European ancestry. Um, You know, there certainly we need more data and better data to sort of draw out this point. But at least it's concordant with you know the epidemiology of acute myeloid leukemia, which is what we think some fraction of CHIP evolves into, um, which is more common in uh, European ancestry individuals than individuals of other
0: ancestries. Now moving on to the next big question in the field of clonal uh, hematopoiesis is, is the therapeutic implications. So um, this, this question to both you, uh, Seth and Alex, is, you know, are there any therapeutic clinical trials being planned or underway to treat CHIP?
3: Uh, so Kelly uh, Bolton, who's an investigator at um, and now at, at WashU in St. Louis, has uh, trials looking at um, targeted inhibition of IDH1 and IDH2 um, chip patients that um, she's recently started enrolling. I think the uh, challenge is that patients with IDH1 and IDH2 chip is extraordinarily rare. Um, but I think that will be one early glimpse about whether we're able to target um, chip and see some change in clone size.
0: I think, other thing is, as well as, you know, like you were alluding earlier, um, inflammation is also a big role in propagating these chip clones. Maybe we should also inhibit this inflammation.
1: Yeah, I, thoughts so I, think, on that. I think, well, there's two ways to go there. So there is a line of evidence, um, primarily I think from mouse studies that supports the idea that inflammation may promote the expansion of chip clones at the HSC, hematopoietic stem cell level. And so one idea is, well, if you block this inflammation, can you suppress the growth of the chip clone, keep the VAF small and therefore maybe decrease the likelihood of ever developing a malignancy from that clone. And so I think there is actually an investigator-initiated trial that's going to be done by um, Uma Barate. I think is the lead PI. Ashwin, I don't know if you're involved in this as well, but uh, uh, there's a trial to do this. And I think they're going to try to block IL-1 beta to see if it has some uh, modulatory effect on the, the growth of chip clones. Another trial that I, as far as I'm aware, no one is currently planning, would be to block inflammation to treat the risk of heart disease um, that we and others have shown is associated and we think causally associated with CHIP. And if we think that the reason for the increased risk is enhanced inflammation of the innate immune system, then perhaps blocking that inflammation would be a benefit. So I think that's a trial that is of great theoretical interest to a lot of people. I'm not aware that it's currently being done.
0: And on the similar lines, can you tell us about your new company, uh, 1016 Inc., and what is the long-term vision of this company? I'm sure it is to ultimately treat chip.
3: I think there's increasing appreciation that um, our somatic mutations in our body, uh, whether it is in blood stem cells and causing chip, or whether it's elsewhere, you know, is a, a new way of identifying a unique population of people that might differentially benefit from medicines. And of course, to the oncologist, that's perhaps not so surprising. That's what we do every day with, uh, with cancer treatment. Um, but, you know, I think to a, a gastroenterologist, the notion that there might be uh, somatic mutations in the liver that might, uh, you know, differentially uh, present themselves and, and be an axis that could be targeted for treatment is, um, you know, is, is an emerging idea. And so um, the uh, vision of 1016 is to uh, try and identify patients who have, you know, one or more of these somatic mutations that um, give rise to sort of differential risk. And try and develop treatments to specifically help those individuals. And um, as you know, was uh, announced a few weeks ago, in clonal hematopoiesis is obviously a, a very strong early focus. Um, but I think the the vision of trying to leverage this somatic, um, you know, mosaicism that changes over the course of our lifetime um, is is actually much bigger than just CHIP. Said it's more of a philosophical question. What do you think could
2: be the hypothetical risks of defying nature by therapeutically targeting CHIP? For example, we now know from your work that uh, CHIP is productive against Alzheimer's dementia, for example. Could it be productive against other things that are yet unknown?
1: It very well could. Um, For example, uh, if CHIP has some role in maintaining the production of T-cells into old age, Yes, then if we block that chip clone, it's theoretically possible that we may suppress that sort of T-cell immunity. So I think there's a lot that's unknown. But I think, you know, from my perspective, chip overall is bad, right? We know that it is associated unequivocally with increased all-cause mortality, unequivocally increased with, uh, with increased risk of heme malignancy. So... In the balance, I think one would rather not have CHIP. But that does bring up an interesting point. If there are certain aspects of CHIP that are potentially benefit, Alzheimer's being one example, uh, anti-tumor immunity being another example, could we somehow exploit that? Uh, Could we maybe somehow rationally design therapies to mimic that effect? Uh, I think that is a very interesting and open question, but I think it doesn't diminish my enthusiasm for maybe trying to target the chip clone to prevent these other bad outcomes.
2: You know, that that's a great point that you made that, you know, overall, maybe there will be some productive effects, but definitely all-cause mortality, we know is higher in chip versus those without chip. So yeah, that that's, I think a compelling argument in, in trying to, you know, target chip.
0: Finally, a practical question for clinicians. Is in patients whom we detect the chip mutations, how should we follow these patients? Should we have a dedicated clinics to follow these patients? I th- Alex, you can take
3: think it. this is a, definitely an, an emerging area of uh, clinical interest uh, here at Vanderbilt and, and certainly nationally. Um, you know, I think that it's the evidence base is going to continue to evolve. Uh, and so right now for patients who are, you know, identify clinically as having chip, usually it's an incidental finding. Uh, people are doing tumor normal sequencing or people are doing liquid biopsies um, and finding chip mutations, and then um, then I get an email about it. Um, you know, For those patients uh, at the present who are incidentally identified, most of them have bigger problems like the solid tumor than, um, than their chip mutation. Um, but occasionally we do find patients who had a clot um, and then JAK2 V617F testing was sent. And then uh, in order to confirm the JAK2 mutation, they sent next-gen sequencing and the next-gen sequencing actually found that uh, there was no JAK2, but there really was a TET2 mutation. And you get into these sort of uh, long uh, sort of uh, rabbit holes, if you will. Um, And at the end of the day, the patient has a chip mutation. So now what do you do with them? Um, I think that obviously the, you know, one key thing is making sure that it really is CHIP and that they don't have cytopenias or something worse. Um, And we're able to do that pretty robustly just with a complete blood count, which should have been done long before the next general sequencing panel was uh, sent for CHIP. Um, And I think, you know, over time, especially if there become treatments available, there will be much more of a rationale for perhaps someday in the future treating chip, you know, screening the same way we do mammography or colonoscopies or other sorts of um, preventative medicine um, treatments but or preventative medicine screening tools, but I think we're still a few years away uh, from that. So for right now, um, yes, I think that um, if patients are identified, they should be evaluated by someone who who knows something about these mutations, because as Sid mentioned earlier, not all chip mutations are created equally. Um, uh, And then in terms of how do we follow them from there, I think there'll be a lot of evolution over the next few years.
1: I agree. I I think we are very much in the early days of this field, a lot that is unknown uh, and a lot that can be learned. So I think at this point, we're we're just doing watchful waiting. You know, you guys are the clinicians, so you, you know better than than me. Um, I think the hope is one day we will have these treatments that are proven to be effective, uh, and we can then really start to do something for people. Um, but I think right now we're still very much in the phase of we're learning about what what this is and what it means. That's
2: good. So uh, yeah. That was great. Thanks a ton to both of you for coming to our podcast today. We really learned a lot and I'm sure our audience will love it. We hope to have you guys back in future episodes hopefully to learn more about exciting developments in the field of chip. Thank you.